0: Welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about a systemic problem of Iran expertise in Washington and how the U.S. foreign policy establishment has created a culture of impunity when it comes to Iran experts. My guest today is Negar Razavi, a political anthropologist who focuses on national security and U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, as well as gender and race. She received her Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Pennsylvania. Negar, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Negar. Thank you for joining me. Let me also make a disclaimer that some of the online abuse that is supposedly directed at me ends up in Negar's account and box. So I apologize for that experience that you have to go through.
1: No, if anything, it makes me empathize so much with you, um, seeing the level of misogyny and hate that you have to experience. I'm so sorry you have to go through that for simply showing
0: a more complicated view of Iran. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, um, Bigar, you've been drawing on over two years of research in the Washington, D.C. area, specifically looking at the role of policy experts and think tanks in shaping U.S. security and policies towards Iran And you had this excellent piece in Jadalia a while ago that's titled The Systemic Problem of Iran Expertise in Washington. Give me a little overview of what this piece is about and the different areas that you looked at.
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, I'm an anthropologist. So the The way that I um, was approaching this topic of expertise was to actually spend time in Washington to really get to know not just how individuals are talking about Iran, but how the entire system and culture of expertise operates in real life. So I spent two years really doing very little talking myself um, and more just getting to know everybody. I talked to experts across the political spectrum, from people who are very antagonistic to Iran to those who want to see more opening up to Iran. So I really tried to look at the full gamut. I also interviewed a lot of government officials and even donors to, to again, try to understand how this broader culture of expertise works in Washington. And what I found is when it comes to Iran in particular, there is um, a very skewed debate and unfortunately the way that experts fit into that is that they reproduce that system and again this isn't about any individual expert it's about uh, a broader system that rewards certain kinds of expertise and certain kinds of knowledge about iran and dismisses and actively excludes other kinds um and i i can go into the specifics of that if you would like but Um, it starts at the level of who is even qualified to act as an expert on Iran, all the way to the kinds of access they have, the ways that they try to produce knowledge on Iran, and the limits on that knowledge. And more importantly, the conflicts of interest that often come um, in the form of expertise on Iran.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. So we'll talk about these different aspects um, that you mentioned in your piece at some point first you asked this question of what kinds of Iran experts matter in Washington talk about that a little bit what what kind of expertise or lack of is it that matters in Washington that has a say that has the most influence on shaping policy towards the Middle East and specifically in the case of Iran
1: right so I should also say that I formerly worked at a think tank and have been following these issues really for over a decade. So I can even beyond the two years of intensive ethnographic research that I did, I'm actually looking much broader um, and longer at these trends. And what I found is that who qualifies as a neuron expert for a very long time were people who usually are former government officials, U.S. government officials and people who have very strong views on Iran, but not necessarily the access or qualifications to make such claims. Iranian-Americans have been a part of this space, but they have all kinds of issues that they face. And then those who are not Iranian-American have issues in terms of who can actually access Iran. They have language issues. Um, I found during my research that more than half of the people who claim Iran expertise at major think tanks do not speak, read, or write Persian. There's this false understanding that Iranian-American experts also have fluency, which is not always the case. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have an anecdote in that piece about language, language qualifications. And then equally people who claim Iran expertise have never been to Iran. Mm. So what is it that makes someone an Iran expert? It seems to be that they have a strong perspective and allies in Washington who want to hear their perspective on Iran Mm
0: -hmm. more than
1: it has to do with the substance of the knowledge that they produce.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of these uh, different um, specific um, areas of expertise that you've uh, looked at and researched. One would be having a degree, basically having studied the region or Iran, a PhD or any other form of degree. Another one would be to Know the language, speak the language, or understand the language, reading the language, and um, also having been to the country or you know visited, experienced, or worked in the country. Talk about some of these areas and how much of that you found um, in the policy community, the think tank community, or the expert community when it comes to Iran in Washington.
1: Right. Okay. So I'll I'll start backwards from the list that you provided. Um, First is access. You would assume that anyone who claims expertise on a country has potentially visited there and ideally has spent significant amount of time in the country. So I say in the piece, you know, um, I quote another expert who says, you know, can you imagine someone being an expert on France and having never been visited the country? Mm -hmm. Right. So, again, half of the, the experts in my sample that I studied had never set foot in Iran hmm. Now, I've gotten a lot of um, criticism for this point since I published this piece, because a lot of people say, well, Iran is not France. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not. Uh, they, firstly, they don't give visas very easily to foreigners and it's not safe for those who do go. And I concede on both points. Mm-hmm. Iran is definitely a challenging place to access and visit. Um So then in the absence of being able to physically... Let me just make
0: a note just to basically elaborate on what you were saying. Yes, it's true that the Islamic Republic is sort of a closed box, gives very limited access to journalists, to analysts, to government officials, to policy people, especially from the U.S. But nevertheless, that problem, even though the Islamic Republic is the one limiting, but that still exists, that people cannot or have not visited this country that they're talking about or are supposedly an expert of. That's
1: right. and But it's also not completely insurmountable. Uh, mm-hmm. I know two experts from major foreign policy think tanks that, in the period before my research, went to Iran on visas by the Iranian government and did research inside Iran. Mm-hmm. So it's also not impossible. Mm-hmm. it's um it's difficult, of course, and um, potentially dangerous, especially for people with dual citizens. Um, but uh, so so yes, it is a difficult situation, but it's also not completely impossible mm-hmm. either, for sure. And there have been journalists who have been granted. Um, repeated visas Mm -hmm. to visit um yeah so then so then the point becomes if you can't access iran physically then you should be able to at least access it through reading newspapers being able to read and access and uh speak to iranians both inside the country and outside the country right so if you can't physically go there can you read newspapers? Can you read the speeches of the le- the supreme leader? Can you, you know, um, access Iran through its written sources or mm-hmm. through videos, et cetera? And then we hit the the second point, which is that um, many of the people who claim expertise on Iran can't do that kind of research because they don't know the language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I brought up. Um, previously, that again, falsely, a lot of people assume that if you're of Iranian descent, that you can do that kind of um, high level Persian translational work. And, and many cannot because they they don't they just weren't trained in the language, even if they're assumed to have that language capability. Mm-hmm. And then people who are not of Iranian origin, many of them have not trained. Um, I would say the vast majority of them don't know. Persian in this think tank expert space mm-hmm. um so so then then you run into the problem that okay you can't physically access it and you also can't access it through the language mm-hmm. so then wh- how are you studying iran mm-hmm. and it seems so obvious when i say this when i give this these facts and figures to people outside of washington they're like yeah <laughs> how are you studying iran and the it's a great question, and it's that they're, they're accessing Iran through English language sources and through translation. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine how much is lost when you're always working in translation. The level of complexity of, of studying a country, any country, is so difficult as it is. And to use the U.S. as an analogy, can you imagine trying to explain the rise of Trump without being able to speak English? without Mm -hmm. being able to read English sources or understand English to, you know, hear from supporters of Trump? How could you possibly give any kind of political analysis about the United States without speaking English? And yet this is regularly done on a country equally complicated, which is Iran.
0: Mm -hmm. You have this very interesting example of a research assistant at a prominent think tank who was an Arabic reader, but wouldn't understand Persian. And then there was another assistant who would only understand Persian, but couldn't read it. And then the two of them, basically, the Arabic reader would read it loud, and then the Persian speaker would translate it for their boss, eventually, who was an expert and who regularly appears on, you know, or comments on Middle East and Iran. This, I think, is just a perfect example. And I usually, when people ask me about similarities and differences between the two sides, I say this is also a problem in Iran, that the access, because of a lack of access to the United States, there's sort of a skewed um, perspective or view of the United States. But I argue that because specifically of this language issue, more Iranian journalists and analysts are able to read and understand English and have a little better of an understanding of the United States when you compare it to um, the other side who doesn't have the language skills as you were just explaining and I also want to ask you about um, uh, studies basically you mentioned at some part in your uh, piece you talk about uh, people who've studied Iran maybe they don't speak the language maybe they've never been but they have degrees of area studies or Iran studies talk about that and what was the uh relationship between uh, having a degree or having studied it um, with the experts that you looked at? So, excellent point. So then if you don't have the language access and you don't have the physical
1: access, maybe you have this deeper knowledge of the region and you've really studied it historically, um, regionally, politically, etc. And again, the Iran experts fall short of that standard. Um, I'm definitely not of the school that says you have to have a PhD to be an expert. But if you don't have those other qualifications, then according to the very definition of what makes an expert, you have to have some some training, uh, some qualification to to fall back on. And sadly, once again, the list of Iran experts falls short. Um, Very few of the people who claim expertise on Iran um, had PhDs that even related to Iran. So they may have had PhDs, but they worked on Egypt, or they worked on Israel-Palestine, or they worked on completely other issues. Very few of the experts actually worked on Iran in their training, um, and yet regularly comment um, on the country. And then others don't even have the PhD and have completely unrelated training. like They have a uh, master's in business administration or their lawyers by trading. And so you ask the obvious question, what makes you an expert in this case on Iran if you don't have any of these seemingly basic uh, markers of what makes a country expert? And then the fourth issue that I would bring up is that Even the idea that someone can be an expert on an entire country is absurd in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And that's something that um, regularly happens in these circles, which is that people say, "Okay, I'm an Iran expert and therefore I can comment on all aspects of this country from the nuclear issue to oil production to like Shia jurisprudence to women's rights to demographic changes in the country. And it's almost laughable to think that one person can comment intelligently on all of these different topics. Um, And yet that happens frequently, where one person is asked to comment on all aspects of this very complicated country, Uh, and sometimes more than just Iran. They're not just experts on Iran, they're also experts on... Egypt and Syria and Lebanon and 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 that devaluation of what actually makes an expert
0: never really gets called out. Mm-hmm. I was going to say the in-house Iran expert, when you look at some of the institutions, um, is usually you know the person that can also comment on other areas in the Middle East. In fact, some are just in-house Middle East experts and not even specific <laughs> to right. a country.
1: That's right. And if you're an expert on Iran, then you're automatically an expert on Hezbollah and you're automatically an expert on the Houthis in Yemen, even though... These are completely different entities. Sure, you can make an argument that they're related, but you're definitely not, there's no automatic expertise just because you know about one that you would know about the
0: other. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you if this is specific to one um, side of the political spectrum. Is it? Um, a specific outlook or perspective on Iran. Um, we assume usually that this happens more in hot, ha- more hawkish institutions. But is it only um, uh, a phenomenon that happens on one side of the political spectrum or is it more widespread? Um, unfortunately, it
1: happens on both sides. And I wrote that in the piece as well. Mm-hmm. And in part, the group that claims they want to have a more nuanced and complex understanding of Iran don't necessarily prop up experts who can offer that more nuanced and complex perspective. Um, Paradoxically, there are several experts on the hawkish side who hit every single box of qualification. Mm -hmm. Um, They've been to Iran, they have the language, and they have the academic training, And yet they have very, very um, ideologically negative views of Iran. Um, So just having the qualification alone is not also the issue here. And we can get to that um, Mm. later. But, But yes, unfortunately, it's both sides that have this problem of devaluing expertise on Iran. And that actually props up the voices that tend to be more hawkish. Because if the, the side that supposedly wants to have dialogue with Iran also doesn't value these things, then it allows the loudest voices to dominate the conversation. And those tend to be the ones that want confrontation with Iran.
0: Mm-hmm. And you have this excellent um, paragraph I want you to elaborate on that you talked to someone who told you, say anything nuanced about Iran, and you're immediately accused of being a mouthpiece for the ayatollahs i have experienced this personally and seen it from many of my colleagues be a journalist or analyst um of basically being labeled or accused of that talk about this and and how this issue of nuance or the lack of nuance plays a role in the in this debate absolutely i mean every
1: every time somebody has come forward in these foreign policy spaces in Washington um, to say something about Iran that breaks the simplistic narrative that it is just, it's an entirely evil, irrational uh, regime that is intent on bringing destruction to the region and that opposes U.S. interests on all fronts. Anyone who has tried to break through that narrative has then Confronted accusations of working for the Islamic Republic, as you uh, and others have experienced, for um, taking money from the Iranian government, which is beyond absurd given the level of sanctions that are against anybody who gets any has any type of financial ties to Iran. Um, it's 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 such an easy way to shut down a real debate on Iran. In Washington, it's it's a scaremongering tactic that has worked for a very long time because it, it it's it can be very abusive and it can be uh, it can put people in danger. Honestly, mm-hmm. um, as you know better than than anyone, these accusations are are thrown around by people who have no idea of the impact that, of of what they're saying. Um, and then, unfortunately, what it does is it creates a system where. We don't have real debates on Iran. Mm -hmm. And putting you aside, why can't we hear from people who have a very close ideological alignment with the government? At the height of the Cold War, the US government was consistently interacting with and talking to Soviet officials. Wouldn't you want to know what your adversary thinks about a particular issue? Like, why is it that we're so scared in the U.S. to even hear the other side of the, of the discussion? Um, and that's, to me, the most troubling part of all is, is the U.S. claims that Iran is its number one state enemy in the Middle East. And yet it is so scared to actually try to understand it on its own terms. hmm.
0: And um, as as far as basically putting this kind of pressure on people who are bringing an alternative view or more nuanced or a deeper understanding, there's also a specific focus on women, on people of color and minorities who are uh, bringing this form of alternative expertise. I want to talk about that a little bit later. But first, let's talk about uh, the Basically, you've tried to identify this problem and um, explain how and why it's been happening in Washington, D.C. Talk about that, the different factors um, that contribute to creating this environment or this ecosystem that you've been explaining.
1: One of the first issues is that there's generally a devaluation of expertise in these foreign policy spaces. And I have interviewed so many high-level U.S. government officials who essentially said to me in no uncertain terms that experts don't really help them, and so they don't really rely on them in general, and that they have more of a reactive uh, response when things happen in the region. Um, There is a general view that people who are nuanced and um, can bring a complex perspective in general, not just on Iran— are not useful for policymakers because they just tell policymakers the situation's complicated. And so there's this overall mistrust of experts. And I would say it goes even further because people who bring a nuanced perspective are going to be more critical of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. hegemony, and they just don't want to hear that. So that's that's one issue. The second issue is that there is very serious vested interests in maintaining the status quo of antagonism towards Iran and that comes in the form of foreign governments especially regional governments in the Middle East that do not want to see the US change its relationship with Iran countries like United Arab Emirates and Saudi among them but others are included in that and then there's you know we we all know it the military industrial complex there's defense contractors, oil companies, etc., that want to keep the status quo in Iran uh, with Iran because Iran being uh, an enemy of the U.S. creates a, a climate of uncertainty that helps the U.S. expand its its hegemonic growth in the region. It's so hard to break through that. And they've these groups have found that by funding think tanks, they can put a very nice face and the. The image of expert objectivity to defend basically their interests in the region, um, and that has also then skewed the conversation against the Iran. And then the third is the, and this is this is a very complicated issue, and I can't give it justice here. But the U.S. has a problem with any government and any country that has stood up against its hegemony over the past 50 years. Um, and so Iran has been the thorn in the side of the U.S. And so when it comes to trying to change that perspective, you're we're trying to overcome 40 years of mistrust and ideologically driven views of this country that don't necessarily match up with what's actually happening inside Iran. It's like the traumas of what happened in 79 have... L- made Iran this unchanging box for so many people in Washington. Even though Iran has changed dramatically and has gone through so many of its own transformations, people in Washington still act like Iran is the Iran of 1979. And any expert who comes forward and tries to change that is automatically suspect. Mm
0: -hmm. And you also explain how policymakers have told you, basically explain the type of people they're looking for when they're bringing them for supposedly expertise or briefings and what kind of packaging of information they're looking for. Talk about that and the sort of favorite types of experts that are are brought in by policymakers on a regular basis to talk about Iran.
1: Yeah, so they almost have created a hierarchy of. Who is the most trusted expert and then and then going downwards? So the people at the very top are former government officials, mm-hmm. former US government officials. They're considered the most credible sources of expertise, regardless of language training, et cetera, because they're seen as having understood how the system works from the inside. And so more than what they can bring in terms of their knowledge of Iran, they have a knowledge of how policymaking works in in Washington. So they're really considered. The ideal experts to bring in uh, for briefings, for meetings with various high-level U.S. government officials. They also know how to package information in a way that resonates with uh, policymakers. So they speak in very short sentences. And and I'm not joking about this. Like, I've had people tell me that this is explicitly what they look for when they're looking for people to bring in. They speak in short sentences they um, can make very complicated issues, simple to understand. They don't talk on and on the way that perhaps a lot of academics do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't come out and say, this issue is complicated. The end. They say, I have five recommendations for what you can do. And that's, to them, more valuable than somebody coming and and really explaining the complexities of, say, the upcoming Iranian elections. The person on the other side has maybe 15 minutes to write a memo to send to their boss, and they want to hear what are the five policy recommendations for the U.S. to do in relation to the Iran election. And that's it. They don't want to hear about the history, about the structure of uh, the electoral system. They don't have time and they don't care. And so those kinds of experts, those who know how the system operates and know how to communicate really well, are the ones that... Get called in the most. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And then there's this very interesting phenomenon where uh, it's oftentimes more junior staff who are asked to bring in people for briefings. And so they're terrified to bring someone who's going to embarrass them in front of their bosses. Uh. And there's something very human about that, right? So they tend to go with the same group of people because they've been tested before, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're like a 25-year-old desk officer and you've been asked to bring someone in for a briefing you don't want to bring in someone who's potentially going to come in and say words like US imperialism and you know the hegemony of american interests you want someone who's going to come in be efficient and speak in a way that their boss appreciates
0: mm-hmm. So instead of bringing real challenge to the status quo or new information, it's basically a revolving door of the same people over and over again, coming in with a form of packaging that they're expecting. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And, and they'll say things like, Oh, well, that person, you know, what had access to declassive or to, I'm sorry, to classified information. They know, understand how it works. So they have all these ways of justifying it. But if you really dig deeper into it, it's, It's really not those issues. It's what you just said. It's, they, they don't want to bring people who are going to rock the boat too much.
0: Mm. And I can understand it from a media perspective. This also happens in media, especially in broadcast media and specifically in TV when time is very short and packaging sometimes even takes priority over content. I've heard from TV producers and bookers, even anchors sometimes saying, asking them, why don't you bring such and such person? He's such a top expert in this area. And they would say, yeah, that person is very knowledgeable. They're just not good on TV. So really the packaging of how they can speak on TV is more important than that bringing the actual expertise in the area that is required. Exactly. And and
1: you would think at a think tank, they would want to promote people who can be sort of in between that, right? Mm. They're not the, the academic who speaks on and on and on about an issue, but they're also not the pundit who just comes on and says, a two minute piece. But I interviewed the vice president of a major think tank who hi- that's his job. He hires experts. And he told me, and this is a quote from him, knowledge is cheap. And now I'm paraphrasing, but essentially he was saying like, I can get anyone to be an expert on an issue. What I am looking for when I'm hiring someone is, is, can this person get their message out?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, yeah, the media consideration is very high, but so it's the same thing with the government audience.
0: Mm-hmm. And at some point, it doesn't matter what the message is. It's just whether you can get it out or not.
1: That's right. And there's certain people who are masters of this. I teach this to my students. I say, do you want to learn how to get heard? Listen to some, some of these people. They, they repeat the same phrase in different ways. In really short, effective ways, they're actually they're experts on communication more than they're experts on Iran.
0: Exactly. And communication is important. I mean, this is true in any field, and any topic, and especially when you're talking about media, when you're talking about briefings. But I think in the case of Iran, it has taken this exaggerated uh, space, whereas, as you were saying, sometimes content almost doesn't matter at all. And it's just a matter of bringing someone who's a good communicator.
1: Right, and that so that uh, that's an issue that faces almost any issue in America, whether it's domestic or foreign. Then you layer onto that all these ideological baggage with Iran and this financial power that these various interest groups have. And so, of course, there's not going to be a nuanced, complex debate. And really, my takeaway from the piece that I wrote that you've been referencing is we should, at least as citizens in this country... Uh, or observers of foreign policy be clear on where people's interests lie. Like, we need to be clear about people's qualifications, where they're getting money from, so that when they come on CNN and give their three-minute analysis on Iran, you understand that that person is getting funding from someone who has a direct interest in what that person is saying on television. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do with objectivity or truth. It has everything to do with sending a message from a more powerful entity that wants to have that message put out in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is a very great point. And I think the idea of, you know, announcing the conflict of interest is not something that's uh, new or very unusual. It's just the complex web that's been created to sort of go around that uh, declaration of a conflict of interest allows for this to easily happen without the audience really being aware of it. I want to ask you also about the role of foreign money. You touched upon mm-hmm. that, but I want you to elaborate a little bit more on how basically not just different interest groups or political uh, agendas in the United States, but also foreign governments and foreign straight states are um, – putting money into Washington and shaping the debate when it comes to the Middle East and specifically on Iran um, in a way that fits their own political agenda.
1: Yeah, and uh, so as far as I've been tracking this, uh, foreign governments in the Middle East, and it's specifically Gulf countries, um, though Morocco also has given money to think tanks, and Turkey has given some money to think tanks. But for the most part, we're talking about three uh, major Gulf donors in the think tank scene, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi and Qatar, have decided roughly around 2002, that in addition to their paid lobbyists, which is all very legal, they're allowed to pay for lobbyists, and public relations firms, Another great way to get their message across to Washington is to invest in think tanks. And they've put serious money into very reputable, very well-known think tanks from across the ideological spectrum. And that money has actually increased over time. Uh, Several of these governments have also set up their own think tanks to just give their line much more directly. But the ones that were more interest for me were sort of the mainstream foreign policy think tanks that take a sizable amount of money. We never know exactly how much, though there have been leaks. For example, one of the major think tanks got $20 million in secret from one of the Gulf countries. And then you look at the kinds of reports that they give out, the kinds of events that they give, and then the kinds of experts that they invite to speak. And you see a direct connection. And I interviewed plenty of experts who work at these think tanks. And they say it's never very overt, you know, uh, somebody from above comes and tells them you can't write XYZ, but it's a type of pressure that they feel, which is, if I write something that my donor doesn't like, I'm not going to get funding next year. And most of these experts are on what are called soft contracts, which is that they have to fundraise for their own positions. So if your donor is unhappy with what you write, you might not have a job the next year. And so this quietly that can create the system where experts don't cross certain red lines um, or they write in a way that always makes it seem like there's two sides to an issue when there's not. And and you can very, very clearly track this on Iran where the think tanks that receive funding from Saudi and UAE, they consistently, the experts that take that money, have a very antagonistic editorial line towards Iran.
0: And what about the pro-Israel groups? We know there's a large network of various institutions and organizations also in Washington who have a pro-Israel um, stands and some of them lobby the U.S. government, Congress um, for their work. Talk about how they fit into this bigger environment that you've been studying.
1: Yeah, so I find uh, them to be an interesting case because when I would interview experts at think tanks that are known to be very ideologically aligned with Israel, they would make the point very proudly that they do not take funding from the Israeli government. And they would make this very clear and they repeatedly would tell me, unlike experts at other think tanks, we don't take foreign funding. And they would use this to sort of bolster their credibility. Um, But then when you dig in deeper, you would find that, yes, they are absolutely right. They're not taking money directly from the Israeli government, but they take money from individuals And groups that are very closely aligned with Israel. And in some ways, it's um, a smarter move (laughs) because you can't say, you know, it's direct foreign funding. It's actually U.S. citizens who are giving this funding. But it has the exact same effect, which is that uh, you look at the think tanks that take that kind of funding from prominent individuals who are known to be very closely aligned with Israel. And they have a very hawkish view of Iran, and they very rarely have events that invite experts that bring an alternative perspective. Um, I just, I always find them to be an interesting, almost more nuanced way of getting the same results.
0: Mm -hmm. You also talk about a complex and often contradictory relationship, as you say, between academic scholarship And government, because as you were mentioning, people in the academia naturally, what you would assume are the experts that should be called upon by the government or their expertise be used when it comes to these areas. But you explain how this relationship is complex, not in the way that you would assume their expertise is being used. Talk about that and why. Uh, this is contradictory when it comes, especially to the case of Iran and the broader Middle East?
1: Sure. So there's, there's uh, the issues that are facing academics from within their own institutions, and then there's the issues of how the U.S. government officials and the foreign policy world views academics. So taking the second point first, um, many of the people in Washington that I interviewed uh, view Middle East experts that are university-based There is this narrative in Washington that these individuals are overtly critical of U.S. power and hegemony in the Middle East and therefore are unuseful for them as people who have to somehow craft policy in favor of U.S. power and interests. In other words, they see uh, the hostility of, of academics as automatically excluding them from the conversation, even if they bring a more nuanced perspective even if they can help clarify a situation, the fact that these people quote unquote cannot be trusted to defend US interests automatically takes them off the table. Now, the reason why I say it's complicated is because in reality, there are plenty of academics who do wanna be in these spaces, who do take funding from uh, you know, State Department and wanna seem relevant and do consulting on the side, occasionally work at these think tanks, work at consulting groups that do all kinds of projects in the Middle East. So there are these academic scholars who are entering these spaces, but then they're rejected by more critical scholars within Middle East studies, for example, um, for being sellouts, for you know um, helping US empire. And, and so a, a lot of what academics are actually doing in these spaces is kind of hidden. And when it comes to Iran, the people who are doing that kind of advising tend to do it very quietly because they don't want to be accused of working too closely with the U.S. government. So that is what I meant by contradictory and complex is on the one hand, people in Washington as a whole are very skeptical of academic scholars. But on the other side, academic scholars are very skeptical of the U.S. government. Um, And then somewhere in between, there are people who have managed to do both, Uh, but they tend to do it very quietly.
0: Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned a few examples of how complex and, you know, deep issues related to Iran have been very much simplified, sometimes even into false assumptions. And then repeated over and over again by experts and into the uh, eventually the media field talk about some of these examples for example you mentioned the houthis in yemen and how that um, group has been simplified into basically an iranian backed proxy
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I would do in my research is I would search for certain ideas. And in academia, we call this like a discursive analysis. I would look at discourse and see where did an idea originate from? How does it get repeated? Um, And so I did a couple of these with different topics related to Iran. And one of them was this idea that the Houthis went from being a movement that developed in Yemen, responding to local concerns, conflicts, Uh, It went from that to being phrased as Iranian-backed Houthis or the Iran proxy in Yemen, completely ignoring the actual history that happened and why that movement developed. I'm not denying that there might be a connection between the Iranian government and the Houthis, but what I am saying is that they went from being this complex indigenous movement in Yemen to simply an Iranian proxy in Yemen, and it, it happens through language where somebody repeats it at a House subcommittee test. They say it in their testimony. So that gets picked up by a newspaper that was covering that event. And then uh, it gets tweeted out and then it just continues to repeat itself. And then you see that it even goes into the U.S. government memos. So this the desk officer who works on the issue keeps repeating that phrase by citing that expert who said it. And this just happens over and over and over again until you don't even know where the original source of that information was. And then nobody calls it out. It just becomes its own truth. And that's, that's one of many examples that I found in my research, which is you, you try to work backwards and say, okay, where was the first time somebody said this? And where, what kind of information did they use? What were their sources? You know, even the work that a good journalist does, like where did this information come from? And it's hard to find the origin just because it's been repeated, recycled, and um, adapted over and over again that it just, it becomes in and of itself its own truth. I give an example outside of Iran once, when I was working at one of these think tanks, we gave a statistic on a completely unrelated issue at an event. Later on, our event became the source that everybody would use to give this information. And yet, when we actually double-checked our own facts, we couldn't find that statistic. So that just tells you, like, that's how facts become facts out of nothing. (laughs) And so when it comes to Iran, there's so many of these uh, where it's like a little slogan or a little phrase that somebody... Gives sometimes offhandedly, sometimes very much with intent, and
0: then it gets repeated
1: so much that it becomes unquestioned truth.
0: Mm-hmm. And it has impact on policy, basically, when it comes to this issue of the Houthis. It becomes a justification for the support of a Saudi-led blockade in Yemen, as you're mentioning in your piece. It's not just something that's been repeated in language. Or analysis,
1: right? So it has very serious effects, um, and the poor Yemeni people, like what has happened to them, is so unconscionable. And yet, you still have people to this day in Washington who can who can justify it by simply saying, "Oh well, uh, the Houthis are a Iran proxy, and we have to stop them, or the Saudis need to stop them."
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another example that you mentioned, I want you to also talk about this, is this idea that Iran's leaders are inherent liars, to some extent, even Iranians, because we've even heard mentions of of this being in Iranian DNA, the Shia conception of taqiyah. Talk about how this whole thing has become um, a, a part of the discourse. Yeah, um,
1: scarily enough, I actually have traced this back way before um, even the Islamic Republic. So this trope that Iranians are liars, I was able to trace this in American newspapers in the 19th century. Wow. There, this is an old Orientalist trope that, you know, people of the Middle East are duplicitous. They can't be trusted. They don't have morals. This is a really, really old racist trope. But it got new life after 9-11 as it particularly related to Iran. So the idea of the mad mullahs, you know, and the right wing in particular loves this Islamophobic argument about taqiyya, where they're like, oh, well, it's a part of their theology to lie, even though they don't put any context into this practice and try to give some type of, you know, weight to what is essentially a racist idea Which is that people who are not American, who are in another part of the world, are immoral people. And uh, you would think that this only existed on the right. But sadly, as I quoted in the piece, someone like Wendy Sherman, who was negotiating with Iran at the time, repeated that idea that, you know, it's in their DNA not to tell the truth. Um, She has since apologized, and I'll give her credit for that. But, you know... Both sides of the aisle have have sort of take it as a given that Iranians, th- their counterparts in Iran cannot be trusted. Well, why can't the same be said of the U.S.? You know, isn't that what the whole art of diplomacy is, is about withholding information? And, and yet somehow Iran is marked as this exceptional uh, state actor that can't be trusted, even though all of the system of foreign policy is based on deception. Mm-hmm. Um and and i think that's always the problem with iran is like it's always marked as somehow an exception to the rule
0: and there was this um dominant line during the 2015 nuclear negotiations from those opposed to the to the deal, or gen- just generally diplomacy with Iran, that Iran may sign this agreement with you, but they're not going to abide by it. They're not going right. to um, be trusted to continue their commitments under the agreement. And eventually, we saw that it was the US side, the Trump administration who pulled out of that deal, or essentially from the viewpoint of the Iranians violated it. And while Iran stayed committed um, to the deal. is still part of the deal. It's just um, with reduced compliance. Um, I want to, Nagar also ask you about the role of gender and race when it comes to this systemic problem in Washington, D.C., because I know you also focus on those areas as well. Um, talk about how that plays a role in the continuation of this ecosystem that we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, so much of what has uh, existed up until now is the same group of people coming up with the same policy analyses and then the same policy recommendations. Um, And that's true of, of any foreign policy issue, but especially on Iran. It's sort of like the same cast of characters over and over again, going in and out of government, revolving door, right? We all know all of this. Part of the way to break through that is to start to bring new voices in. Who can bring a different perspective? You know, there's been a recent push in the foreign policy world to increase diversity. And so women and people from the region and people of color have tried to break into these spaces. But what ends up happening is that they face a horrible backlash in a way that their white male counterparts do not. And so it has a disciplinary effect where women are brought in to diversify a panel, and yet they will be the only ones who are repeatedly sort of undermined by the audience or by the moderator in some cases, to the point where that woman then does not want to come back and be a part of that space and that conversation again. And so, yes, people are being invited, but not being included into these conversations. And you know this, and, and I know that you've been doing some reporting on this, but, you know, women voices in these spaces face particular harassment and abuse both online, at events, in, in all kinds of ways that really makes people want to retreat from being in these spaces in the first place. And so then you, you end up once again with the same cast of characters. The, the other problem then becomes also when people want to diversify to be able to say racist and sexist things. And this happens particularly on the right where they will bring in the expert of color, particularly someone from the region, to say horribly racist things about Iranians. You know, they'll bring someone, I don't want to name names, but they'll bring someone who essentially says the same racist lines about Iranians being liars, But the person has an Iranian name and so therefore can be uh, sort of used as a deflection to say, no, 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 we're not racist because the guy is, is Iranian himself. And so that's this really sick twisting of this whole diversity movement that's happening where people are being brought in to give the image of inclusion and diversity, but really to just reinforce the status quo. What I found in my research on women experts is that the story gets complicated with second generation diasporic experts, Mm -hmm. because a lot of them grew up with the racism of this country and are less willing to sort of play that role of like the good native who who will like sell out their own people. (laughs) You know, they they will tend to use more critical language and will connect their own exclusion from these spaces to the kinds of foreign policy problems that we've seen with Iran. And so I, in a lot of the talks that I give to academics, I point out that January of 2020, when we were potentially minutes from war between Iran and the U.S., it was a group of second generation Iranian American women who were dominating the media saying this is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a coincidence. It's like the, the strongest voices advocating for peace and for calm and for like any semblance of rationality and calm in that moment were a group of Iranian American women who were going on CNN and BBC and all of them and on your podcast and et cetera, saying like, like, let's calm down. Let's try to figure out what's going on. Let's be real about the facts on the ground again i don't think that's a coincidence i think it's people who have ex- who've experienced oppression on various levels are able to see that this system that's been created that wants to continually have confrontation with iran doesn't serve anybody who who whether it's americans or iranians
0: mm-hmm. and for that very reason i think as you were mentioning women are also top targets when it comes to providing an alternative view or expertise. Even in the news, we see female reporters who work purely on the news side, not really analysis or providing their own opinion, are under constant attack and pressure if they bring any form of nuance or you know a story that presents a normalcy or human side of the Iranians. Um, to the media landscape. And some of the attacks and the abuses are just really, really um, sexist and misogynistic. I've had many women and men come to me in private and tell me, we don't know how you can handle it and that mm-hmm. many women are not able to take this kind of abuse and pressure. And as a result, they just become more reserved or more silent or are afraid of, Uh, participating in the political debate which is exactly the intent of of these attacks on the women experts. Um, And the irony of that
1: if I can just say very quickly is a lot of times it comes from our own communities Mm. and uh, these are the same people who are saying that they want democracy and human rights in Iran oftentimes can be the most violent and oppressive in these spaces to the point where they are not allowing women to have a voice in a society that's supposed to be free and supposed to protect people's rights, and yet they come and they use the language of violence and threat. The very thing they're accusing the Islamic Republic of doing, they are doing in these online spaces, and yet um, they don't seem to see the irony of how oppressive they are towards women in their own community. And it's really sad and it's very sick. Um, And it only serves ultimately to hurting the average people on both sides.
0: Mm -hmm. And as we saw in the case, you mentioned this in your piece also, the Iran disinformation project, it was run by a group of Iranian Americans with U.S. State Department money basically targeting and attacking and smearing and trying to discredit anyone who provides an alternative view on Iran which would have which would be critical of then the Trump administration's policies on Iran and this included former hostages in Iran former political prisoners human rights activists as well as journalists and academics who are all Um, U.S.-based and American citizens. Well, that project is defunded and terminated, but that was just one example of how um, this cycle continues. So finally, I want to ask you for some recommendations. How do you think this environment or this uh, cycle and this ecosystem that exists in Washington can change? What are the ways um, that this form of expertise or the lack of um, can go through a transformation and basically help improve U.S. views and U.S. policies towards the region, specifically Iran.
1: Yeah, so I think um, one thing is to just uh, raise awareness about how this system operates and, um, you know, bring up the issues that we've talked about today. You know, um, let's ask critical questions about who's calling themselves an expert. Let's have an open conversation about funding about where people are getting funding. And then I think it needs to be more of a policy demanded by uh, media sources, um, donors, et cetera, that when people are coming forward, whether they're testifying formally before Congress or in informal meetings at State Department or Defense, that they need to disclose where their funding is coming from. In all of their reports, I think there needs to be upfront discussion of where their funding comes from. Academics are required to do this all the time when they publish in academic journals. They are asked, do you have a conflict of interest? And then they have a definition of what that is. And you have to say upfront whether you do or not. Um, it's not a perfect system, but that's something that you know the audience can demand of their experts. When people are booking for their shows, they they should be asking those kinds of questions. Um, there should be a disclaimer like, oh, this person is on the payroll of <laughs> of a certain government uh, that has a direct interest in this expertise. And then I think um, beyond that, there needs to be alternative spaces created um, where voices that are qualified, that do have access, that don't have conflicts of interest, can be elevated. Um, And again, I think it's about creating platforms like this one, creating think tanks that take funding from other sources, but also like inviting, when possible, voices that are wholly critical of US foreign policy in general, to be a part of the conversation, because it's not happening within the system itself. So We sort of have to demand that these spaces be created or we have to create them ourselves um, and show by practice what does it mean to create um, credible expertise. And I'll just call out, for example, um, at SAIS right now, there's a Rethinking Iran project that's trying to do that. It's trying to bring voices that are not typically invited to be part of the policy discussion. A lot of them are academics who have done very substantive research inside Iran to come and talk about what is it like to actually live under sanctions, to be a doctor who's living through COVID and having to struggle with sanctions. Like these are perspectives that have been actively excluded for so long
0: and yet need to be part of the conversation. Otherwise the policy will never change. I'm glad you mentioned the SICE, the John Hopkins uh, program. It's run by Narges Bajorli and Nas, both of whom have been on this podcast in the past. I encourage everyone to go and listen to their episodes if you haven't. And also, I'm hoping to get some of these other experts that you're talking about on the podcast in the future. That would be great. Okay. And on that note, Nigar, I want to thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast on your time. Thank you so much, Nagar. This is really great. That was Negar Razavi, a political anthropologist who focuses on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, national security, gender, and race. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support the podcast by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and then clicking on support until next time. Goodbye.